Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Cardionerds, welcome back. We are so excited for today's discussion, especially with the guests that we have today. We have fellows and colleagues from the University of Washington Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. It is my pleasure to welcome Doctors Andrew Perry, Shannon McConaughey, and Betty Ashine. And as I ask them to introduce themselves, I just have to give a special shout out to Andrew Perry, who really has been such an inspiration for us as Cardio Nerds before we got started. Andrew is the famed host of the cardiology podcast, AP Cardiology. Really awesome interviews. The content is incredible. And I remember in the beginning when Dan and I were thinking about starting this whole adventure. We used to listen to Andrew and his skill with recording, the way he brought his experts to ease. Honestly, like we used to take notes. And as we started recording and getting into it, we just got so much tremendous advice. So Andrew, thank you so much for setting us on this path. We really appreciate everything you do. And for our audience, you definitely have to check out AP Cardiology. So folks, welcome to the show. Please tell the audience who you are. Oh, I can start because you're far too kind in your words for me. This is Andrew Perry. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow at the University of Washington, and I do a cardiology podcast called AP Cardiology. I'm originally from Utah, and I went to medical school and residency in St. Louis at Washington University. Hobbies that I do, I like to ski, I like to hike, and I like to bike. Oh my God, hearing your voice, I kind of feel like I'm a, a guest on the AP Cardiology show myself. This is pretty cool. My name is Jana McConaughey. I'm one of the third-year fellows at the University of Washington. I actually grew up down south and did my undergrad and medical school training at Vanderbilt and then happily moved out to Seattle for residency. I also did a chief year before staying on for fellowship. And like Andrew, I think it's a theme in the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely love to get out into the mountains, which we've got some amazing skiing. So that's mostly what I spend my winters doing is chasing snow. And to round it off, I'm Betty Ashini. I'm a first-year cardiology fellow at University of Washington. Um, originally from Ethiopia, did my undergrad and medical school training at Duke and went further down south to the University of Miami Jackson Memorial, where I did my internal medicine training before I moved up to the West Coast to do my cardiology training here. Speaking about the theme, I used to never hike till I moved here, but I see why everybody hikes. So just got my new hiking boots and started my first hike last week. So I think I'm going to be a hiker like most people out here in the West Coast. That's awesome. I've, <laughs> I've got hiking boots that I'm, I'm really proud of. They're phenomenal, but they're completely unused. They're so clean. It's like you could, I could probably sell them as new on Amazon right now, but I'm glad for you. All you need is to come to Seattle and we'll change. <laughs> You're on. <laughs> Yeah, the last time I went hiking was in sneakers, and I regretted that heavily. Yeah, it was terrible. So definitely could use to use some hiking boots. Betty, Andrew, Shannon, welcome to the show. This is a huge treat. I echo Ahmed's sentiments about Andrew's contributions to our show. He has been so instrumental in just his modeling of how to do an amazing cardiology podcast. So guys, this is a real treat. If I say it's amazing to be in Seattle and then say I smell Starbucks. Is that like not a good thing to say? Does that show that I don't know anything? You mean Starbucks? 
<laughs> yeah, isn't Starbucks like based in Seattle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, but is, that's probably okay. It's probably lame to say. I, I probably look like an outsider already. Guys, no, I feel where you're coming from. As somebody who just moved out here, I expect Starbucks every corner, but in between that, you also have a, lo- a lot of local brands that I'm just getting to know as well. So you are not too far off, but I'm sure that Shannon and Andrew would probably tell us about more seasoned, like local brands they know about. Yeah, definitely, definitely make us look cool. We don't want to look like uh, lame, like tourists. So why don't you take me and Amit to your favorite place to chill and start talking about amazing cardiology? I think it's a little too late for us, Dan, but let's do it. Hey, Shannon, do you want to lead out on that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of our favorite places to come chill, especially if you're around the hospital, is uh, this this joint called Agua Verde, which is right on the water. It's a mostly taco place, but you can get beers or they've got this amazing hibiscus juice that I love. And so it's a great place to come chill on your off time or if you just want to get away from the hospital for a few minutes right on the water and you can go paddle boarding and kayaking. So it's a place that we like to come hang out together. And that's where we'll be today. I'm so glad you took us to water. And, you know, one of the things I love about Seattle is that it's just this like urban metropolis on a water bank in a backdrop of some beautiful nature and mountains and hiking. And so this is just such a great way to spend our day. We're hanging out with you guys, chilling, having some hibiscus tea. Let's do what we love doing when we are hanging out with friends on a Sunday afternoon. Let's talk cardiology. What do we have today? So we have a case for you guys. It's a 59-year-old woman. She has history of COPD, alcohol use disorder, and hepatitis C, and she presents with generalized weakness and falls. She's found to have a tibia fibula fracture, and cardiology is consulted for preoperative risk assessment. Symptoms-wise, she had prior rare intermittent non-anginal chest pain. However, in current presentation, she denies any chest pain or dyspnea. But in reviewing her medical record, it shows that about three years ago, she had presented with this acute left-sided chest pain, and her initial troponin was 0.04 and on repeat 0.05. But given that there was no cardiac catheterization performed, but then she presents again in 10 months later, this time with chest pain, two-day duration, and troponin at that time is elevated to 0.5 initially and goes further up to one. She has a cardiac cath done which shows a proximal mid-LAD calcification, but no stenosis. Yet again, nine months later, she's admitted, however, this time for nausea and vomiting. She's found to have elevated troponin yet again, this time with a peak of 1.13. And on transthoracic echocardiogram, there is septal wall motion abnormalities, but during that hospital stay, no cardiac cath is performed. She's hospitalized again four months after this, this time with generalized weakness, troponin is 0.5, she has a repeat cardiac catheterization. This time it shows the same thing, proximal mid-LED calcifications, and yet again, no stenosis. Along those lines, she has a repeat admission 12 to 13 months later. This time, the chief complaint of generalized weakness and falls. At that time, her troponin was elevated to 27 and peaks at 32 during that admission. I'm sorry, it was elevated to 0.27? No, on admission, her, her troponin was elevated to 27, and then it uh, peaks to 32. Wow. Okay. Yeah, this is like a yeah, legitimate exactly. troponin so, elevation of like 27. This is micrograms yeah. per milliliter, I think. Wow. I, I, I had assumed that this was like a verbal typo, you know? I had to read it again when I saw the values as well. I don't blame you. It's pretty high. And mind you, this presentation that we're talking about is before her current presentation. This is a few months prior to the current one we're talking about. So let's take it back to current time. Right now, reviewing her medical records, past medical, so like I said, hep C, COPD. She has no past surgical history. Her medications, she's on aspirin, atorvastatin, lisinopril, and metoprolol. She has no known allergies. Family history is non-contributory. And social history is she has history of IV drug use and alcohol use disorder. I think we should frame this, at least this initial part of the discussion around that May admission rather than the current admission. I do think there was a lot of clinical consideration that went into that May 2019 admission because she has this abruptly elevated troponin, granted on a background of chronically low elevation troponin, but now with this significant peak, it was ordered in a clinical context without any clear cardiac symptoms. So it sort of came out of the blue. And then 
when we essentially backtracked and went to talk to her and really probed more about any potential chest pain symptoms, she gave this history of really intermittent non-anginal chest pain that really didn't match up with something that we would consider typical for cardiac pain. And so I think you're really scratching your head here. You can't ignore this troponin, right? I think this might be a good time to talk about sort of the framework of Bayesian reasoning a little bit. Ideally, you would be gathering this history and physical first, forming a clinical hypothesis, and then shaping your testing around that hypothesis. And ideally, you you order a test when you're in an intermediate pretest probability range. And then that test, if it has high specificity, will move you into a high probability range. And if you have a high sensitivity and you get a negative, it will move you into a low post-test probability range. And so it's kind of hard when you have this backwards and you have a positive test that in all likelihood has moved us from a low pretest probability to an intermediate post-test probability. And you're stuck as the consultant wondering what to do with that. Um, And I think the differential for her is wide. When you're thinking about the differential of things that could cause a high elevation troponin in someone who has a low pretest probability for plaque mark rupture mediated ACS, I think about things like stress cardiomyopathy or myocarditis as being more common causes of significant troponin elevation in the lack of plaque rupture. Thank you so much, Shannon, for that analysis. And Betty, this case is really, really interesting. And I would say actually super frustrating for both the patient and the clinicians. I mean, think about it. You have this woman who's coming in with atypical chest pain and basically could have easily been dismissed. But we already learned, you know, multiple times over and on Cardio Nerds, we've actually emphasized this with two episodes so far with Dr. Nanette Wanger and Dr. Martha Gulati about women's health and taking women's cardiovascular health seriously and taking atypical complaints. And maybe they're not truly atypical after all. And, you know, and applying Bayesian reasoning to it, but also, you know, appreciating that not everybody reads the textbook. And so this woman has already gotten two cats and was taken very seriously and was not found to have obstructive disease. And, you know, she's coming in again with another presentation, yet another after so many presentations with this elevated troponin trying to point this towards an ACS picture, but not actually finding that. She's coming in with another presentation similar to her previous presentations. And from the patient's perspective, imagine getting consented time and time again for a cath. And you're basically, obviously the consent was done really thoroughly and the outcomes were discussed with the patient before the cath. And it looks like you're having a heart attack. You might get a stent, you might get bypass. She goes into the case and then it doesn't pan out that way. And then again, you know, it happens again. And she keeps getting this whole conversation about ACS and potential, you know, differential diagnosis presented to her and, and nothing ends up coming about it. And then she, again, and comes and has to hear this again. And I could just imagine it being very frustrating to all people involved. So I'm really interested to hear what happens next and how you approached it this time around. I agree. And like you said, not only is it frustrating, she's in the past three years already undergone two cardiac catheterizations, both unrevealing. And during that time, her troponins were not necessarily as high as the most recent one. So you're hoping that moving forward, maybe her physical exam and her labs can be a little more revealing, even though the story is not really adding up. So I want to go into some of her vitals and exams. So when we go in to examine her, she's afebrile, heart rate is 79, normal tensive in 105 to 70. She's satting well on room air, she's about 100%. And she's not in any distress. Cardiac exam isn't quite revealing. It's regular rate and rhythm. S1 is clearly heard. No murmurs, no knocks, no friction rubs. You don't really appreciate a JVD. Lung exam, clear oscillation bilaterally. Abdominal exam is benign and lower extremity, no edema. And we check her pulses, two plus, both on upper and lower extremities. So vitals right here, for the most part, are normal. Betty, this exam is completely normal, very much in the face of an elevated troponins. And it's actually a little helpful here, right? Because when Shannon so clearly outlined a differential diagnosis at this point for just elevated troponins, and just to reiterate, you think, is this a ischemic ideology or a non-ischemic ideology? And if it's an ischemic ideology, is it a primary coronary failure, right? Either it's atherosclerotic or, you know, you can think about coronary dissections or vasospasms or myocardial bridge or aneurysms, you know, they have a long extensive differential there. Or if it's a non-coronary ischemic ideology, it could be a supply-demand mismatch type situation. And then in the non-ischemic side of things, you have other causes of myocardial injury. And we think, you know, early on to things like myocarditis, because that tends to sort of leave an impression on your mind, like one of our earlier cases. 
in, in the history, you may ask the patient if they have like a prodrome of flu-like symptoms, etc. But then there's also a list of causes of myocardial injury that cause more like indolent courses with a symptomatology, maybe a little bit dramatic, right? And so there may be things like muscular dystrophy that's relevant. So like a systemic muscular dystrophy that may also affect the heart, like myotonic dystrophy and Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And so her exam doesn't show evidence of skeletal muscle weakness. And uh, cardiac amyloidosis is another important one. You know, so if you're thinking about ATTR, you might look for carpal tunnel syndrome with DNR atrophy or AL amyloidosis. You may look for macroglossia and things like this. And so even though the exam is normal here, it is nice because it gives us some pertinent negatives that help understand our patient and the lack of systemic signs as uh, pertinent negatives in teasing apart the differential diagnosis here. So thank you. Yeah, I agree. Even though it doesn't completely give us a hint of the diagnosis, at least it makes some things less likely in your differential. And then next data point we had was looking at our laboratory. So in terms of her CMP, these values were all within normal limits, as was her CBC, our coagulation panel as well. She had a troponin of 10 on the more recent one, and then she had anti-prone BMP of less than 100. These were the labs that we had at time for evaluation when we were asked to do the preoperative cardiac risk assessment for her. Just one thing that I would point out, that troponin is very alarming. You might worry about a clinical presentation of heart failure, for example, with amyloid or stress cardiomyopathy. You know, and she's one thing that I was comforted by is how well she appears and her lack of symptoms and her normal labs, except for the troponin, all kind of help you de-escalate your sort of urgency. It doesn't give you an answer, but at least you don't have to worry as much about her while you're figuring out what's going on. I agree. So like Shannon said, her lab values are pretty reassuring. And then going from her lab values, the next thing we have is her EKG. Looking at it, there's nothing obvious that sticks out. We don't see any ischemic changes. That's the presenting EKG we have for her. I mean, particularly interesting about this person's ECG in comparison with her elevated troponins, some of the things that we're concerned about, is she having an acute coronary syndrome? Well, on her ECG, we don't see any ST segment changes is what we generally look for. ST segment elevations, ST segment depressions, or Q waves, of which she has none. Some are thinking about non-coronary syndrome type etiologies to cause an elevated troponin. One of those, as we've mentioned earlier, was cardiac amyloidosis. So one thing that you'd classically see on an ECG and troponin as you're comparing these two is your troponin would be elevated. And then when you look in the ECG, there's going to be low voltage because you're going to have all this infiltrative protein within the heart causing the voltages to be low. And then on your echo, which we haven't gone over yet, you'd have a thick ventricle as well. Next, now we're talking about like, does she have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Well, that should generally present on an ECG with signs of left ventricular hypertrophy. So tall Q waves. And that's probably a separate discussion uh, for another time, but in the precordial leads and also in the lateral leads. Additionally, we can also think about, oh, does she have sarcoidosis, another infiltrative process? And we look at this ECG and the QRS is narrow. She doesn't have any evidence for bundle branch disease anywhere throughout this ECG. So that also makes it a little bit less likely. In terms of like myocarditis, I don't know if the ECG is going to be like super helpful in helping me determine whether the person has myocarditis based off of an ECG alone. So, I mean, it's reassuring that her ECG is normal, but it doesn't really help me so far in thinking of what's the cause of her troponin elevation and is her generalized weakness and falls, is that because of a cardiac process or are these just true and true unrelated? Andrew, thank you so much for walking us through such an expert read where you're looking for not just the pertinent positives, but also the pertinent negatives. That was great. I would say like, you know, in a patient with chest pain and troponin elevated to 27, I definitely would be thinking about circumflex artery occlusion since, you know, the ECG isn't showing any other evidence of ischemia and often circumflex artery occlusions could be ECG silent. And so those usually get my interest percolating for something like that. But, you know, obviously in the absence of all these other indicators for an acute coronary syndrome process, as you just pointed out, less so, you know, definitely sitting back, taking in this whole story and trying to make heads and tails of it like you are. That was great. So we have a situation where this patient is hemodynamically stable. There's no concern for sort of like a a high kilograde acute coronary syndrome or anything along those lines. So we have some time to think about this. It sounds like what we need now is the window into the heart or an echocardiogram. (laughs) That's what he needs. He needs, we need an echocardiogram. Don't do astronomy, but you know, maybe just a little echo. We got her echocardiogram to her ECH finding. We're hoping that there might be some 
other findings like such as if she has any fluid buildup around her heart or if she has any wall motion abnormalities that are different from her prior echo, what we do find is that she has maybe mild LV dilation, but no pericardial effusion. I might have Andrew talk about any other findings that he saw on her echo. So her echocardiogram is also like frustratingly normal as well. So like mildly dilated left ventricle, but not like markedly so, just like just above the upper limits of normal. And then her ejection fraction is normal, 58%. There's no wall motion abnormalities throughout this thing. There's normal right ventricular size and function. There's like maybe a little thickened aortic valve with trace insufficiency, calcified mitral valve, papillary muscle with trace mitral regurgitation, and no pericardial effusion. I mean, like, yeah, I can point to like some things that aren't like totally normal, but again, not very helpful in thinking about our diagnosis. Like, is she having acute coronary syndrome? Well, there's no wall motion abnormality, so not helpful there. Does she have amyloidosis or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or another infiltrative disease? No, her ventricle like looks normal thickness throughout there. And then as mentioned in terms of, well, we haven't really mentioned about whether it can be a cause for like heart failure, if she's having like a chronic heart failure syndrome that she's presenting with these and not really like her left ventricle appears pretty good, you know, considering all ventricles that one encounters throughout their cardiology fellowship. And then again, there's also no valvular disease as well to, to explain any of these findings either. Yeah, you know, frustratingly normal is, uh, I think, really well put, Andrew. You know, her troponin elevation is magnitudes above normal. It's like raging on fire, elevated troponin. But so far, based on her symptoms, her vital signs, her labs, her EKG, her echo, we really don't have much to go off of. There's certainly a disconnect here. But, you know, my curiosity certainly peaked. My level of concern is as high as ever because it makes me uncomfortable that we don't know why she has such an elevation in a lab value that typically pretends really bad prognosis. Yeah, guys. And, you know, definitely thinking about the differentials we talked about, besides for obstructive coronary artery disease from plaque rupture, you know, obviously with somebody like this coming in re- repeated bouts of troponin elevations, you'd want to look, see what the coronaries look like, you know, seeing is believing. And so I'd love to see what the images look like on the table of truth, you know, especially it'll be nice to inspect for subtle signs, like, for example, evidence of spontaneous coronary artery dissection, SCAD, or, you know, evidence of, let's say, intramural hematoma, some milder signs on cath that are not fully obstructive and may shed some clues. So it'd be great if we got to see what the images are from the table of truth. Did she end up getting a cath? So at the time of this presentation for this case that we're describing here, she did not receive the cath. A few months prior though, three or four months prior was her most recent angiogram. And that's when she was noted to have this mildly calcified area in like her mid left anterior descending artery. And other than that, but there was no stenotic lesions either there. Good normal Timmy three flow throughout the angiogram as well. And the rest of the coronaries also looked smooth without evidence of even like luminal irregularities to suggest ath- underlying atherosclerosis. So at the time of her presentation, a few months later, with this generalized weakness falls and the tib-pib fracture, an angiogram was felt to not be helpful in this term because she's had so many angios before. And feel free to take a look at those images of her angiogram to take a look at what her coronary arteries look like. And maybe you could post them up to your website. Yeah, perfect, Andrew. We'll, we'll definitely put these pictures up. But, you know, I'm sure the audience will are all within the belief of trust but verify. But if they were to trust me, I'd say that there really is nothing that jumps out at all in terms of causing macrovascular obstruction. Clearly, there is a disconnect. And I'm just reflecting on the fact that a coronary angiogram only looks at the apocardial vessels. And if you were to look at the entire coronary vascular tree, the epicardial vessels are just literally the tip of the iceberg. And so, especially in women who may have a picture for ischemia or an anginal picture who have negative coronary angiography, and there are other red flags. Here, maybe we don't really have too many other red flags apart from the troponin itself, but there certainly is a higher risk of microvascular disease in women compared to men. And so I think that may be worth considering or taking a look at, potentially a PET for absolute myocardial blood flow or something along those lines. But I'm scratching my head. I'm kind of confused because even if you do have substantial myocardial ischemia, you would anticipate that you know maybe the LV would be more dilated or weaker or potentially have transient ischemic dilatation if we were to do a nuclear stress test. But that certainly would be one area that we we would want to take a look at before we say that this is not a coronary ideology. Sure, I think that's a fair 
point to bring up. And in terms of like look at microvascular disease, probably the best study that you could get would be a PET scan to look at myocardial flow throughout the entire vascular bed. As mentioned, we're already looking at the epicardial system with her coronary angiogram. That said, I also share the same skepticism that with just like her long prolonged history of presenting with these elevated troponin levels. And particularly, it looks like it's been going on for a few months now. Granted, we're not checking this person's troponins like weekly or monthly, but it gives you the sense that there's been ongoing myocardial injury or damage for a long time. And I think a large disconnect at this point where we're pausing and thinking, if this person's been having myocardial injury and damage for months at a time, this echocardiogram should show something abnormal. Like if it's from ischemia, or if, it's, if it's microvascular or macrovascular, there should be a wall motion abnormality. There should be a problem seen on this echo. If it's from some of these other causes, I would think or hope that there should be some issue being presented or some subtle finding seen on her echocardiogram, which we're not really coming up with. I think that's such a great point. And, you know, if we didn't have maybe her history presented to us, you know, here we, Betty has done such a good job doing that thorough chart biopsy and really considering the tempo of this disease. In another patient where maybe if you only knew them for this current presentation, it would certainly be important to look for microvascular causes. But I I agree. I think it'd be odd for uh, such a long-term duration of such a troponin elevation and uh, long-term exposure to some sort of myocardial injury without developing any structural adverse consequence on an echocardiogram and having normal function. So I think that certainly decreases the likelihood that there is true pathologic microvascular disease as well. So the the history really does help right here. One thing I would like to point out that I think we're, we're sort of talking around is, you know, back in that May admission, she had a classic rise and fall in troponin much higher than prior She fit all the criteria for the fourth universal definition of MI, even in the absence of epicardial disease. And we didn't have the luxury of time being able to say, oh, look, she's had months and months without evidence of myocardial damage. And on that admission, we did want to do this workup that we're talking about, you know, because she falls into this Minoka or MI with non-obstructive coronary arteries, whatever you want to title it, used to be called syndrome X for the microvascular disease. You know, there's a list of things that can do that. And we particularly wanted to order both the stress test and the MRI at that point. And sort of one social layer that we haven't explicitly called out yet is that the patient was pretty reluctant to get any of these studies done. And ideally on that admission would have had this full workup and we would have felt more comfortable, I think, crossing off some of these things that we're calling out as potential on the differential. Yeah, these are really great points, guys. Thank you so much. At this point, how do you reconcile everything that's going on? Because there's still a disconnect and we need to explain these findings. Sure. The other things that we did for her was lab work. One thing is we got a CKMB, which was within the normal range. We had alkaline phosphate that was three times the upper limit of normal at 314. And she had a rheumatoid factor that was 1,156 with the normal being less than 15. And comparing it to her prior values, she used to have a rheumatoid factor value of 70. This was a year prior. So this is an elevation that's different from the past. We discussed her case with the lab medicine department, and they performed a 1 to 10 dilution of the sample, and the troponin levels were undetectable. That being that with the Mayo testing, the troponin T, it was 0.024, 0.024, normal being less than 0.01 on that, and troponin I of 0.02 for her with the normal being 0.04. And going further into how the troponin testing is being done, so the troponin assays are done via the enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, so ELISA, and the manufactured capture antibodies bind the troponin, which links to the conjugate antibodies, which gives the positive result. But in some cases, we do have these false positive troponin. The causes of that include anti-reagent antibodies, clot or fibrin, rheumatoid factor, as well as elevated phosphate. So linking back to our case, some of the things that we did find in her is that we mentioned the elevated rheumatoid factor, as well as elevated alkaline phosphate. So this kind of gets us thinking, is this what's happening for her? And in order to detect false positive results from interfering antibody, the lab can dilute the sample to check for linearity, and they can check a separate assay as well. 
So the issue is that different assays have different antibodies. And unfortunately, most labs only use one assay for troponin. We use a ROCH one in our institution. So if I can pause at the minute there, I think it was a really interesting and thoughtful consideration at the time of this presentation. And it's not one that I had thought of prior to this. It's almost like a a gutsy idea to think about mentally because it's ingrained into us from medical school about how sensitive and specific troponin is to myocardial damage. And it's like harped in about, oh, like here's our history of how we used to test for myocardial infarction. You know, we used to basically not test for anything. Then we got these ECGs and then we got AST elevations. Then we start checking CKs and then we got CKMBs and we got troponins and we're getting better and better and better at finding evidence for myocardial damage and ischemia. And then to just like look at that value in the face and just say, I don't think you're real. I'm going to see if this is all a lie. It's really like a bold, like change in thought for me. And so, as she mentioned, like this sends you down another pathway of like, well, maybe this troponin actually isn't telling me the information that I think it's telling me. And hence this check on like a CKMB, normal. You send it out to another testing facility and the values are dramatically lower and normal on one assay, mildly elevated on another assay. So like just a really striking change. And then you start to realize all the difficulties that come from these tests that we send out. And the difficulties that lab medicine and our chemistry labs have in running these tests and in interpreting these tests. One of the dirty secrets that many labs and manufacturers know about these assays is that each human produces nonspecific antibodies. And we can all create false connections between these ELISA assays. And so what they try to do is come up and iterate and practice and refine their assays to try to make it the best as possible so that those interferences don't occur, but it still occurs in a, just in a very rare and infrequent method. There are known antibodies or factors or reagents that then cause those interference with the assays, like as Betty mentioned, our patient perfectly, the rheumatoid factor and elevated alkaline phosphate can lead to interference with these assays. So guys, it sounds like we're saying that basically the troponin was a red herring in this situation all the way. And we are now determining that and and attributing that to laboratory interactions. And really, the troponin shouldn't have really factored the way we thought about this particular patient's clinical presentations. Is Am I getting that? Correct. That's how I view this case. I will say there is still, even as I reflect on it, there's still some information that doesn't settle totally right with me in that... On some of this patient's prior imaging tests, there were wall motion abnormalities seen on echocardiograms. But on this presentation, there's no abnormalities on her echocardiogram in terms of like wall motion. And so I'm not going to say that this person never had another cardiac event in terms of like, did she have a low grade myocarditis or was there a stress cardiomyopathy sometime in the past? But certainly at this time point of this presentation, absence of symptoms and this troponin elevation that appears to be a falsely positive. I think at this presentation, there's, you know, no active myocardial damage or injury being done. And Andrew, when you have this artifact of the assay, or not really artifact, this real finding, but the, I guess, an interference of the assay, do you expect a rise in a fall like this? Yeah, the troponin values, how like it was checked multiple times. And then, you know, a few months ago, she had this dynamic rise and fall in the troponin. Actually, no, you don't expect that. That's abnormal. And so I don't have a very satisfying answer as to why there are these dynamic rises and falls from a few months ago. Even at the elevation level that we're talking about, these aren't high sensitivity troponin assays that this hospital uses. These are, you know, up in the 10 micrograms per deciliter range. And those are much higher than what is actually reported for most cases in terms of antibody interference. After discussion with our pathology department with the lab medicine, I think all those folks kind of agreed, though, that when they do the dilution and then you send it out for another assay, so a dilution of your sample, if you take this sample that caused a positive troponin and you dilute it 1 to 10, you'd expect that if it's normal and true positive, 
that the end result that you should have is one tenth of the original number that, that you were being reported. If it is not, you get these non-linear reactions from these antibodies. And so when our lab diluted the sample, then it became undetectable. So that's one clue. And then sending it out to the other assay, each different brand has different antibodies and different ways to interfere with it. And so if it's the person's own antibodies that they're creating to it, a separate assay from a different manufacturer may not result in an elevated troponin. So let's say, you know, just for education and teaching somebody who's approaching this from the get-go, how would you suggest that one come to the conclusion that they should be looking more into the assay? Like what would be your algorithm of that should basically trigger somebody to do what you guys did and look into the assay and see if the troponin is actually a troponin to be looking into? I do think this case brings up kind of a bigger picture shift that we're sort of making. Um, Granted, this patient ended up having what I still think is sort of a zebra reason for an elevated troponin. But I do think Andrew's really on to something when he says that we're sort of reframing how we think about the troponin as a test because we have all been so conditioned to think of any positive troponin as a clinically significant finding. He mentioned the sort of how far the assays have come, and it it really is true. The first and second generation troponin assays came out. The analytical sensitivity of the test, meaning their lower limit of detection, really was pretty high compared to our modern standards. So even if you were sort of setting the line of demarcation for a positive finding at the 99th percentile, it was still high enough that that tenant was true, that any positive troponin was clinically significant. And so that's the way we've all been trained. But now we have these ever-increasing analytically sensitive tests, meaning that our now our lower limits of detection are so low that many normal people will have clinically detectable troponins with these high-sensitivity assays. And so it's really changed the test characteristics in a way that I think our clinical reasoning hasn't adapted to yet, although I think it will have to. And so you get this phenomenon where as the analytical sensitivity of the test has gotten better, the specificity has gotten worse. And then that's further layered with an additional complication. And that is that in these modern generation assays, when we're doing research studies to define the test characteristics, the population that we're using to define the normals have narrowed. So now we're screening out patients who have renal disease, who have sepsis, who have trauma, and to define what are our normal troponin values. But really, if you think about how we apply troponin testing in the emergency department and in the inpatient setting, we do not apply it to those narrow populations. So you're taking a test that maybe had 80% specificity when it was tested in a research setting in this narrow clinical population. And if you apply it generally, your specificity is going to drop dramatically because now you're including all those patients that got screened out who will have positive troponins for non-myocardial infarct reasons. They may have myocardial injury, right? But if you're looking for type 1 ACS, those patients do not have type 1 ACS. And so mentally, we think of troponin as a very highly sensitive, very highly specific test, but often and when we're applying it in the real world, it doesn't hold up. And so we get what's called the spectrum bias, where you have a low specificity test that you're sort of giving more credence than you should. It's going to be a challenge as we're rolling out these high sensitivity troponins in America. I think we're going to have to use a lot more clinical judgment. And we're going to have to weigh these frustrating situations where we have a positive test and really go back to look at our pretest probabilities to think about what do these test findings mean. And we're not going to be able to say every positive troponin is a clinically significant one. I do think it's going to be a challenge. So Shannon just like beautifully talked about how in terms of thinking of like an algorithm in terms of when to think about interference in the assay being a troponin assay, I think it's maybe more of an algorithm of how do we approach the patient with chest pain. You know, patients show up in the ER and then they get lab sent before they're even seen by a physician or on a busy inpatient service cost cover at night, you get an ECG and a troponin before the providers even had a chance to see the patient. That said, there are a couple of 
clues and highlights that you can detect and find on someone that could hint at you that their troponin assay may be interfered with. And one is mentioned is rheumatoid factor. So if the person has a history of rheumatoid arthritis and you know they have a high rheumatoid factor, that is a known antibody to interfere with these assays. Additionally, these assays generally use an alkaline phosphatase enzyme in order to trigger the positivity of the test. And so if you have an elevated alkaline phosphatase for a variety of reasons, you could have an elevation in your troponin because of that. So those would be like two clues that might clue you in. But generally, stepping back, I don't know that I have an algorithm to say this is when you should think about it. It's more of a situation of which my information doesn't make sense. And I think that goes in terms for many tests that we order in that we look at them like they're going to be the end-all, be-all, truth-telling you know, sources that we hope all tests, both serological and imaging tests, are going to give us. But we have to view them with their own issues of interpretability and what is the reason and cause for ordering that test. Yeah, that was fantastic. And, you know, this case very much highlights the issues we come across every day. You know, the ultimate diagnosis of likely uh, troponin assay interference is probably rare and unique and something to definitely keep in our mind when there is a disconnect. But the features of this case that I think highlight why clinical practice can be so challenging is even though there's a diagnosis that makes a lot of sense within this clinical picture, you still have, as Andrew, you said before, like there are some things that don't quite fit in, like the issue of wild motion abnormalities in the past and the rise and fall of the troponin. But, you know, we've essentially made sure that there's nothing serious happening with this patient clinically. We've done a thorough evaluation to make sure we're not missing anything dangerous. And you very nicely outlined what is probably causing this degree of troponin elevation in the absence of clinical cardiac injury. So I think this is a great case highlighting some challenges in real-world clinical practice, but also incredible clinical reasoning, and finally coming together with sort of Occam's razor type of diagnosis. At this point, I'd love to ask you guys, how would you differentiate uh, true troponin elevation indicating cardiac injury, because she has had episodes of chest pain and concerning symptoms in the past, versus, oh, this is just her assay interfering again? Like, How would you make that distinction when she comes back to the hospital with chest pain? I think part of it would also have to be with her presentation at that time because differentiating her past, for example, in the past, she's always has non-anginal chest pain, not actually on presentation, but in the previously. So let's say in the future, she presents again to the hospital for one cause or another, trying to differentiate, does she have any new symptoms? And we might even be pushed to get a rheumatoid factor and alkaline phosphate examination to make sure that that won't be interfering. And then trying to piece her... EKG and maybe if it's necessary, a repeat echo, depending on what her presentation is. So it helps that we know currently about how with her specifically when she has high rheumatoid factor and alkaline phosphate, it does interfere with her troponin. We just have to make sure that the next time, should she present again, does anything change and does she have a similar trope elevation or not? And so that helps us kind of figure out how we should move forward because it's not to say that she can't have moving forward plaque rupture, myocarditis, or whatnot. So we can't completely exclude those diagnoses in the future, but it helps us know that there's a chance that should this happen again, it could also potentially be a false positive. In terms of how to think about this patient, if and when they represent in the future, and how to evaluate this person for myocardial injury and ischemia, if that should be the presenting you know, concern. You know, it'd be nice if we could label this person as allergic to this type of troponin assay to say, you know, the information that we're going to get from the Roche troponin assay on this patient is probably not going to be useful information. So then can we check for a CKMB, which unfortunately some hospitals are not starting to do anymore, but then also relying back again on your EKG data and your history taking. And with those and in combination probably with a, you know, with a CKMB, if you're able to get it. Or if you're at another hospital, you might be able to use a different troponin assay. I think that would be the way to approach this patient rather than uh, thinking of it. Because what's, what's going to be hard for this patient in the future is that there's calcified lesion in the left anterior descending. So there's probably some a degree of mild atherosclerosis somewhere in there. And the patient's at high risk for having like a true myocardial infarction. And how do we ensure that we not miss that? I think I still kind of grapple with how to then not have a bias in the chart 
for future physicians when evaluating a patient like this to just immediately discount their presentation and their symptoms when they present. So a quick question in terms, just like a devil's advocate, let's say this patient had come in with, uh, let's say we ended up getting an MRI today and we saw some areas of scarring, nothing transmural, but just like patchy areas of scarring. Would that be surprising? Would that fit also with this picture? I think if we were able to get the additional information from a cardiac MRI and see like some patchy fibrosis seen on there, I don't think I would be that surprised because at the end of the day, while I think part of these presentations are from an interference on the troponin assay, again, I have discordant information that I have an imaging study as well. You know, the table of truth, the echo don't lie, the die don't lie, all these like phrases that we use. You know, there was there was an abnormality seen. And so I guess I would not be surprised to then later find out that there's a separate diagnosis of intrinsically cardiac disease process that's going on that we have not yet diagnosed. I agree with Andrew. You know, a lot of the, the discussions we've had about these, these low specificity and all of that, or, or even the false positive assay, that doesn't really explain the rise in the fall aspect that happened at the time that she had imaging abnormalities. So I wish we had more definitive data for that hospitalization because I too would not be surprised if she did have positive findings on her cardiac MRI. This is one of the things that I love about this case is that this is so representative of real life practice. This case encompasses both sort of a generalized, almost a reality check on our testing practices and how we have to put them into clinical context. And it also brings up sort of a, a highly unusual reason for pulse positive troponins that we should all be aware of, but also layers on the fact that while we have explained this one episode of elevated troponin, we can't hang our hats on that. And we don't necessarily have a definitive answer for some of her prior admissions or are not able to definitively rule out that she also had some intrinsic myocardial injury process going on. And again, to me, that's one of the beauties of this case is that while we can't explain some things, we can't explain others. And we have to, if we meet her again, meet her with an open mind, consider her current clinical presentation, and then frame any testing in that context of the fact that she's had unexplained findings in the past and also has this rare potential false positive troponin. To summarize this case, we have a patient who over a series of two or three years has presented with a variety of complaints, a variety of encounters, sometimes including chest pain, sometimes without, and multiple tests to look for coronary disease on coronary angiograms. On the patient's current presentation, there were no cardiac complaints in terms of like chest pain or shortness of breath, but we have a markedly elevated troponin assay, which this person had on previous presentations without a previous explanation. Now, this case highlights a need for skepticism in terms of the troponin assay. However, it does not provide a solid final diagnosis for this patient. And that's one reason actually why I chose this case for our discussion here, because it's a lot of what happens in medicine and in cardiology, in that you see patients, they frequently don't follow the rules from the textbooks, and we have issues with determining what their final cause was. And a lot of their stories are still ongoing and yet to be unfolded. But we don't have a like a nice tidied up box for you. And there could still be more to unfold for this patient. We've explained and highlighted one issue that can come up in terms of the evaluations and the issues that occur with the troponin assay. Yeah, thanks for that, Andrew. And this has been a great discussion about the pitfalls that we could fall into within medicine and really, again, appreciating the test that we're sending and know how to interpret it and then know when things are not quite lining up as we see. And again, I I totally agree with you. In medicine, not every patient reads the textbook and not every entity has been discovered. And so we're going to be seeing lots of patients like this all the time where not everything is tidied up. And sometimes it's TBD and sometimes which stands for to be determined. And sometimes we have to kind of follow their clinical course. And, you know, and we did a lot of the upfront triaging early on in this case to say, while this patient is not toxic appearing, we don't think she's having an acute MI. There's not myocardium at stake right here. And sometimes follow-up is the way to go. And that sounds like that is what the plan is for this particular patient. That is what makes cardiology exciting as well. 
like going through these pieces, trying to put them together, seeing that there are things that don't click and knowing that we haven't discovered everything in the field and there's more to go and being patient and you know, doing your own observations and digging deeper, such as like here, where we're looking into lab assays and trying to actually answer questions that arise that are posed to us clinically. So with that, guys, I'd love to hear why you chose cardiology and also specifically at UW. I can start off. My interest in cardiology is kind of a combination. So I'm interested in both cardiology and global health. And I thought doing cardiology at University of Washington would help me marry my interest in global cardiovascular health, which is something I see into a budding field later on in the future. And there's a few interests here and there, but I felt at University of Washington, there's definitely an interest in it and mentors that could help guide me in that path. Being from Ethiopia, I felt that working in the field of cardiology, it being the highest cause of morbidity and mortality in both low and middle income countries was what led me towards the field because I like to think big scale in general. The reason why I chose cardiology is at the end of the day, it's what I'm interested in. I remember getting this advice many years ago that to pick the field that you go into, pick up their key journal that they have and see how far you can read through each article. And if you can make it through at least the abstract, that's probably the field for you. And so, you know, a little tongue in cheek on that. But like, if I pick up an issue of Jack, you know, I can read through all of the abstracts and like maintain interest. If I pick up an issue of like chest, you know, I kind of get lost like within like the first method section, for example. And that said, why the University of Washington? I think there's a few things to like highlight in particular. One, it's been important to me throughout my training to look at places with a high encatchment area. And the University of Washington certainly includes that. We see patients from all the way from Alaska, Montana, Idaho. And there's a big whammy region, the five-state region here. It also hosts one of the largest adult congenital heart disease programs in the United States. Along with that, our interventional group is top of the line and proceeds with really heavy coronary interventions like complex chronic total occlusions and all the structural interventions. They're also a very high volume transplant center. The year that I was applying, they had the second most number of transplants in the country in that year. So it's a really high volume clinical center that I really love going to. And the last thing is that you got to love the people that you work with. And I think that highlighted, and which is in part also why we're at Agua Verde today, is that my interview day when I came to visit, and at the end of the day, they said, oh, well, you what time's your flight? When you're going? I was like, oh, I have a few hours before my flight. I thought I might try to go kayak somewhere or like do something to like spend a couple of hours. And uh, the program director said, hey, let's get our program coordinator, walk you over to Agua Verde, get you a kayak and go spend a couple of hours kayaking around on the lake. And it was a beautiful, like crisp October day. And you're just like, wow, these are like really nice people. Love my co-fellows. Awesome place to be. Love it a ton. I went into cardiology because I loved it from my first rotation. And I think I was sort of drawn in by the physiology and how sort of tangible the it's like fluid mechanics, essentially, that I get all nerded out and excited on. Um, and then I got hooked into imaging, uh, which, again, cardiology is such a great field to do procedures, imaging, you can kind of do it all. And YUW for me, it's definitely a clinically busy center. We get patients from all over, which gives us this huge range of disease that we see. And in addition to the complex PCI and the transplant that Andrew mentioned, we also have one of the premier ECHO programs. We get incredibly good training in ECHO. Um, we have this sort of a storied history in ECHO with Dr. Otto and Dr. Perlman who have been there and continue to teach. But really, at the end of the day, it's what Andrew said about the people. I did residency here and, and had already started forming amazing faculty and mentoring relationships or mentee relationships. And those have just only continued to blossom. Our attendings are so humble. They are across the board experts in their field, but are incredibly approachable. And to the point that you don't always realize how good they are or how sort of renowned they are in their subspecialties. Because when you're learning with them or when you're working with them, you know, there's no intimidation factor. You can ask them anything. And so the teaching to me at this fellowship is just incredible. And I'm very, very appreciative for the chance to learn from these amazing, intelligent attendings that I get to work with every day. And I'm also constantly humbled by my co-fellows who are equally amazing. 
Wow. Andrew, Shannon, Betty, thank you so much for walking us through this perplexing case with lots of twists and turns, but you know, great teaching, awesome clinical reasoning, and definitely adding another diagnosis to our list of possible causes of troponin elevation. So had a blast with you guys. Thank you so much for taking your time on a Sunday afternoon to show us around Seattle. And thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, thank you for having us. Had a great time. Thanks for having us. And now we are honored to have Dr. Kelly Branch, Professor of Medicine from the University of Washington, provide the eCPR for this case and share phenomenal pearls and high-yield insights. This is Dr. Kelly Branch from the University of Washington, Professor of Medicine and Cardiology. Very happy to contribute to this very interesting case proposed by our fellows here and for the Cardio Nerds podcast. So I think this is actually a great case that uh, you're occasionally going to see in clinical practice, but you're definitely going to see on the boards. And it really is, in summary, a 50-year-old patient with uh, chronically elevated troponin with non-cardiac chest pain, did have a history of hep C and COPD, and a history of both alcohol and intravenous drug use, who's presenting with falls, atypical chest pain, but again, that kind of persistence of this abnormal troponin. I think it's really interesting because this was over a long period of time, multiple workups, including two cardiac catheterizations showing no significant luminal disease with this little bit of calcification in the LAD. And then over time, we saw this chronically low-level troponin, which I think is a little bit more common in these patients with erroneous troponins, but then also had a rising troponin twice, which is really not very well explained. Suffice to say that when I'm approaching a patient with abnormal troponin, I'm really thinking about this in the context of a couple different ways that you can have myocardial damage. And so I call it the SD4. So if you think about it, you have a supply and demand mismatch, and that's really the most common reason and what we typically think about as cardiologists. So there's a supply problem. This is acute coronary syndrome. This is coronary artery disease. There's a demand issue for whatever reason. But then you think about the other potential causes. You could also have cardiac destruction in some way, something like myocarditis. And then you could also have displacement or deposition, and that is essentially the myocardial cells are actually being destroyed as they are being phased out with apoptosis and or fibrosis. And so if you think about the SD4, I think that helps conceptualize the reasons why you could have a troponin. Now, what wasn't in here, of course, was the patient like this, which has the diagnosis of exclusion, an erroneously elevated troponin, and the reason being that there was just some interaction with the lab. But let's just back up for a second, because when we're approaching this patient, obviously many people have thought about this over the year, we think about a couple things that it is not. Well, this is not acute coronary syndrome, right? Patient ruled out with cath, very less likely than by history and ancillary findings. The only thing that was actually a, a little bit interesting, there was a single echo with the septal wall motion abnormality, but everything else was actually pretty much fine, including ECGs, labs, etc. Now, the patient did not have a cardiac MR or a stress test looking for scar, so that would have been very interesting. But otherwise, this really is an acute coronary syndrome and really no way to prove that this is chronic coronary syndrome either. This isn't a dilated cardiomyopathy. We know that from the echo. I doubt it's a cardiac contusion because the, this would be a one-time deal and really no history. And this is obviously isn't demand with sepsis, illness, frank COPD abnormalities, tachyrhythmias, etc. So other things to think about, remember when we talk about the ST4, think about other reasons why you can have supply problems. Obviously, we looked at anemia and hypotension. Patient did not have that through time. But think about some other things. Could this have been methemoglobinemia? That's possible patient was not cyanotic, was this patient a sickler and just a, a carrier potentially, and so had low-level sickle, and could this be an issue? Highly unlikely. What else is unlikely? It's unlikely it's this myocarditis. It just lasted too long. It could be deposition or replacement disease, but again, over the period of time, I would have expected we would have seen some changes within the echo, and it really didn't. Persistent really makes infectious myocarditis much less likely. One thing to think about because of the history would be HIV myocarditis. It's a nice review from Manga and Jack in 2017. But since you didn't have any infectious symptoms, didn't really have any increase in uh, opportunistic infections, and also didn't have a decrease in EF, highly unlikely. And there's really no evidence of pericarditis either, which would go with a uh, myopericarditis syndrome. So that's probably unlikely. Coronary dissection is in the differential. It's possible, but the trope lasted so long, it's highly unlikely. Recurrent chest pain is much more common in these patients. 
The other thing is, if you look at this, falls and weakness, and weakness were really not clear as to how they contributed. Although with the uh, positive rheumatoid factor, there may be some issues with uh, underlying rheumatologic disease. But whenever I think of falls and weakness, I think about muscular dystrophy that was mentioned before. But since the neuro exam was fine and no progression, at least it wasn't mentioned, I think it's less likely. You could also think about one of the zebras, a mitochondrial disease. Those patients can sometimes have elevated troponin T, but patient didn't have any heart failure symptoms, didn't have any CKMB or other symptoms, so I think it's much less likely. We could start to think about cocaine or meth chest pain, right? So in patients, they would like to keep this secret. I envisioned that a eutox was performed, but we start to think about supply and demand mismatch. We start to think about vasospasm for these patients and vasospasm from, these, from, the, from the drugs themselves. So that could be a possibility. Along those same lines, varin or angina is also possible. Patient did have normal coronaries, but did have calcium. So that means there's probably some extraluminal atherosclerosis. So the vessels aren't completely normal. But because she has atypical chest pain, no other symptoms, makes it much less likely. There was a mention about microvascular disease and endothelial dysfunction. It's possible, but again, the symptoms are atypical rather than being more classical chest pain. Patient really had atypical symptoms. So I think it's less likely that it's that which then finally leads us to just an erroneous elevation in troponin. We have many times that we uh, get a lab, it doesn't make any sense, we repeat. And that should really be part of this, is that if it just doesn't make any sense, start to really think outside the box, and lab error is going to be the biggest diagnosis of exclusion. That happens to be correct here. So if we think about some of the reasons for erroneous elevation, I think those have already been discussed as well. We think about renal insufficiency, there was none of that. Heart failure, and that's oftentimes from supply-demand mismatch, um, possibly destruction as we move into a fibrotic phase. And of course, COPD, again, no evidence that there was significant COPD exacerbation. But that lab error, what other things that we can do? And this is going to probably be showing up on the boards, right? Chronic low-level indolent increase in troponin. Start thinking about interference with the assay. And it really falls into one of three general categories. You either have antibodies, endogenous antibodies, such as rheumatoid factor, as shown here. It also could be heterophilic antibodies. Those are possible, including some anti-mouse antibodies. That's also possible. And or fibrin. And that's a very common cause because we get fibrin clots that interferes with the assay in a tube. If we repeat it, it should go away. The fact that the dilution took it away suggests that it was erroneous. And then finally, alkaline phosphatase can interfere some assays, but not all. And so sending it for a different type of troponin as done here could be very beneficial. So what I would suggest for you, if you really want to read more, there's a nice uh, article from James Januzzi and Jack in March of 2020, which gives a short summary of the false positives and the false negative causes for troponin elevation. And I think that's a good read. So again, thank you very much. I'm very happy to contribute to Cardio Nerds and happy learning. Now we'll transition to our eCPR segment and message to our applicants from our program director, Dr. Rose Freeman. Dr. Rose Freeman has been at the University of Washington for many years now, and she's one of our primary echocardiogram readers and also runs one of the heart valve clinics. She helps write some of the textbooks on heart valve disease along with Dr. Catherine Otto. Hello, everyone. My name is Rose Freeman, and I am the program director for the Cardiology Fellowship Program at the University of Washington. Thanks for inviting our fellows to be a part of the Cardi Nerds podcast. What a great case and discussion. Throughout it, I had mental images of a thinking face emoji with a thumb ponderingly placed on its chin as the fellows discussed the sleuthing skills needed for the patient's care. I think this case touches on what pulls many of us to this profession, the human element needed for clinical diagnosis. Cardiovascular medicine truly has a fantastic array of diagnostic tools at its feet, procedures, labs, physical exam findings, yet when faced with conflicting data, it was that human element with detective reasoning that led to an explanation for this patient's discordant lab findings. It was fun to hear Andrew, Betty, and Shannon as discussants. I think they did a great job with Andrew's mad podcast skills shining through from his own experience with AP cardiology. I'd like to thank CardioNerds also for the opportunity to highlight UW's training program. We have a rich training history within cardiology. In 1950, Dr. Robert Bruce, the father of exercise cardiology in the Bruce Protocol, took the helm as our first director, and now UW's Division of Cardiology has grown to be the largest section within internal medicine at the University of Washington and a world leader in cardiovascular research, scholarship, education, innovation, and clinical care. Every year, we welcome eight fellows to our program with an aim to recruit and train 
exceptional clinicians and future leaders in cardiovascular medicine. UW's clinical programs see a wide breadth of patient acuity across our training hospitals, which include the UW Montlake and Northwest Medical Centers, Harborview Medical Center, which is a King County facility, and the Seattle VA Medical Center. As Andrew mentioned, one of the unique aspects of UW is its wide catchment area, drawing from the whammy five-state area, which includes Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. This provides a great clinical experience for our trainees with one of the highest volume cardiac transplant and durable mechanical circulatory support programs in the country, a large adult congenital heart disease program in partnership with Seattle Children's Hospital, and a true center for cardiac innovation with high volume transcatheter devices, valves, and a complex coronary intervention program. Fellows in our training programs participate in the breadth of cardiovascular research from bench-based investigation, translational research, health services, and population global health research in partnership with the Institute for Health Metrics. As program director here, I distinctly remember sitting in interviews with Shannon three years ago, Andrew two years ago, and now Betty last year, hearing them convey their individual aspirations for their future careers as cardiologists. And it's been really gratifying to see those pathways form and gel once they arrive in Seattle. From the time trainees join our fellowship, UW faculty supports individual career goals. Our program offers the flexibility, particularly in year three, to get the additional training components needed as fellows segue to their next stage of training or careers. We genuinely take pride in our fellows' achievements throughout their careers, and we are fortunate that many stand as UW faculty. Of course, as Shannon, Andrew, and Betty described, I would be remiss if I didn't discuss the distinct bonus for UW, which is to have this fantastic training program couched in the splendor of the Pacific Northwest. Seattle is a bustling metropolitan area with music, food, and, of course, coffee scenes that offer many different choices. For avid sports fans, sales home to the Seahawks, the Sounders 2019 MLS Cup winners, and now the newly minted Seattle Storm 2020 WNBA champs. Seattle is situated between the San Juan Islands and several national parks with the North Cascade Range to the east, Mount Rainier to the south, and the Olympic uh, Range to, on the peninsula to the west. There are hundreds of hiking trails within and only a short drive from the city. Personally, I have a penchant for long, meandering hikes, and after living here for nearly two decades, I find that I'm still taken aback when I'm surrounded by the natural beauty of the Pacific Northwest. So, I will pause there and say thanks again to the Cardio Nerds team for a fantastic podcast. And if folks have any questions or want any more information on UW's program, please visit our website or feel free to contact us directly. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Mm-hmm.